Sunday Frazier's first novel was a showstopper, a Today Showstopper. And she received the Coretta Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent. Growing up biracial, Frazier has incorporated some of her own experiences in her writing, with characters who work to find acceptance from a world that can still be skeptical at times. In her new book, Mighty Inside, she draws from her father's story. The inspiration for this story goes back to 1941, when my grandparents purchased their first and only home in a part of town where they were forbidden to live. My grandpa got around restrictive covenants that kept black people out of certain neighborhoods by working with a white man who posed as the buyer and then deeded over the house to my grandparents. When my grandma told me this story about 20 years ago, I knew then that I would write a novel in honor of my black people in Spokane, Washington, and by extension, the Pacific Northwest, a place that people don't always associate with black folks or with racism, but both are here. This book is another accessible tool to address racism and prejudice, not just in Spokane, but in our country today. Avid reader, president of the Spokane chapter of the NAACP, and force of nature, Kiantha Duncan, leads tonight's conversation with author Sunday Frazier. We are so glad to welcome them both to the Northwest Passages stage. conversation, I'd like to give you a bit of a warning. We're going to talk about racism. We're going to talk about racism in Spokane. Now, I know none of you are involved in that, but this is the reality of this city, and so I want you all to sit back and be comfortable with hearing something that you might not have heard before. So, thank you for coming. Sunday. How are you? I'm so good. I'm a little emotional after seeing that, that beautiful piece. And I have to tell Rob, after hearing all about this books and review, I'm a little jealous. I kind of want to move here. This well, sounds like a pretty amazing town with an amazing newspaper. You can move here if you move to my neighborhood because okay. I need a little support. <laughs> so I am super excited to talk to you about the book. And I want to tell you all out there and you that I didn't write any questions for you. Okay. Bring because on. we're going to just have a conversation. Let's just have a conversation. We're going to have a conversation. There are some things that I want to talk about, and I make myself some notes about that, but I have no notes on questions. So the first thing, where did this book come from? <laughs> it is about so many different things. As I was reading it, I realized this is more than just a story about a young boy. This is more than a story about racism. This is about adversity. It's about differences. I mean, a little bit of everything. So how did you manage to pull all of those things into this little there book? There is a lot in a fairly thin novel, but the seed of the story came about 20 years ago when my grandma, Grandma Tucker, who is a Spokane native, told me the story about how she and my grandfather acquired their home in North Spokane. And actually, it's kind of crazy. When I came into town yesterday and we pulled up to the Montvale Hotel, 
I realized the place where I heard that story was downstairs in a restaurant underneath the Montvale. So it was like I was returning wow. to the place okay. where my grandmother told me this story. And when I heard this story about how they had to work around the restrictive covenants of the time and the social expectation that blacks wouldn't live on the north side of town, I was, um, first of all, I wondered, how have I never heard this story before? I was amazed. And then well, there are people here in Spokane who've never, never heard, heard that story. That story. Yeah, I know, yeah. right. So this is about 20 years ago, so I was in my 30s. I'd never heard the story. And I don't know what inspired her or provoked her to tell it at that particular moment, but I'd never heard the story. Second thing I realized was my grandfather had even more of a steel spine than I realized. I knew he was a proud and self-assured man, and I respected him and admired him. He died in 1976 when I was just eight years old, but I, I had this awe of him. And he became even more awesome to me when I heard this story. And then the third thing I thought was, everyone needs to know about this. Everybody. <laughs> Listen, do you got, does this crowd tweet or Facebook or something? No. Tell people to get this book. Yeah, like, so you I heard it from her. How, Everybody yeah. needs to get this. How yes. can people hear this story? And so that began the journey of me just ruminating over it. Like, I knew at that point, I want to write a novel. I had already, I've already written a few novels at that point. This is my sixth book for kids. And I, I just began, but it took me a very, very long time to get this one out. Probably about 10 years of working on it off and on. Because in my mind, I had this really grandiose vision. I really wanted it to be so you know, compelling and beautiful in terms of telling the story of my black people. I wanted to show the dignity, the perseverance, the resilience, the vibrancy, the joy of this black community that I did experience growing up. I didn't grow up in Spokane, but I visited often. And I had all these stories from my family members, um, and I, you know, I had experiences with the black community. I went to Bethlehem Church with my grandma, you know, and so all these people were largely life to me, and I wanted this book to be a homage to them and honor them. And I knew it was not going to be as good as I wanted it to be. Like the ideal in my head was not going to match the words on the paper. But it's pretty amazing. Well, thank you. I had to just do it. So, you know, it took me ten years, but I eventually got it done, and um, now it can get into people's hands where they can read about it, and I hope that it will give honor. So I decided, this is, and Rob, you can help me with this, I think that this should be mandatory reading in all of SPS public schools. That would be I really do, because it is just a gentle, it's gentle, it's gentle, it's truthful, but it's really gentle in how we're having these conversations, and sometimes that's what we need. And so I think that this could be a great book for children and for adults. Um, and so I made myself a note. Make sure you let Dr. Swinion know they should read this book. Because <laughs> I would love that. Now, for me, what was most fascinating about the book really was thinking about the lives and the narratives of the characters. Okay. I got really caught up into that. Like, really caught yeah. up into that. There were some places where you describe things that were so real to my black experience. Mm -hmm. So the one where, uh, there's a point in the book where you talk about having the Murray's pomade <laughs> and the smell of that in the, in the, uh, in the, in the barber shop. Bar shop. Yeah. And I thought, I don't think I know a black person in America that has not smelled Murray's mm -hmm. in a barber shop. Mm -hmm. 
because it is a universal black community smell, Merlin's, I mean, no, that's probably how that product got so popular. Yeah. So that to me, it was little bit pieces like that that said, no, 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 she knows about the experience. Mm -hmm. She actually knows about it. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the lead character Melvin. and sort of how Melvin developed. I sort of kind of got a crush on Melvin. <laughs> because I saw him struggling along the way at the beginning and still at the same time he was so determined. He was determined to not be um, identified by his abilities or different abilities mm -hmm. and he just continued to work towards that. I thought it was lovely that he wrote the letter to, uh, to, to, to get the piece of paper, the, to get the um, Yes, Paper the voice power yes. and personal power pamphlet that voice you order in the first power. chapter. You hear him really struggling and wanting to, you know, figure out why do I have this speech impediment, and even more importantly, how do I fix it? Mm -hmm. He just has this, you know, thing. I got to get over this. Um, that is his big struggle. But um, Melvin Robinson uh, is a 13-year-old boy, and he's really just, you know, the story centers on him. He's trying to find his voice and his place in 1955 Spokane. Um, and, you know, the struggle does center around this speech impediment that he has. Um, but at the beginning, you see him getting ready for high school. So he's only 13, but he's, so he's a young high school freshman. Um, he's on the short side. He plays the accordion, not because he wants to. He's made by his mother. No. And not because it's cool. Um, and, you know, and then he's got this stutter. And so he's pretty much terrified about going to high school. And um, that's, you know, that's the centerpiece. But of course, as the story evolves, uh, really what I can, wanted to bring out was that he's starting to, he's coming of age at the dawn of the modern civil rights movement, right? It's 1955. This is the same year that Emmett Till was murdered um, and that Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. And so he's coming of age uh, at this time in history in a part of the country that we don't associate with the civil rights movement. However, we had our own struggles here too, and I, I knew much about this through my grandparents and from their generation of people. So even though the Pacific Northwest has not gotten a lot of airtime in terms of the civil rights struggle, it is a real live issue here too. And so I wanted to show, you know, I wanted to represent Absolutely. <laughs> black people in the Northwest. We're here. You and know? you did that. And there is a point in the book where you say, you know, the Pacific Northwest is not known for racism or black people. Mm -hmm. And both exist here. Mm -hmm. uh, the NAACP plug. <laughs> the chapter here has is 102 years old. Yes. 102. Yes. So that means that there have issues right. through history. And so like any, I mean, the black experience in America, there's a lot of overlap no matter where you live in the country, but I think there's a unique experience Absolutely. in the Northwest. And I wanted to show that, a picture of that. Absolutely. To, so to let's enlighten people. Let's go back to Melvin. As oh, I yes, mentioned, yes. Melvin. these characters, I really just kind of fell in love with them. But this was something that I wanted to read, and it was <laughs> Melvin's scanned brother's list. The, do, the do's and the don'ts. This was hilarious. Do carry your books on the side. Two maps, never a whole stack. Do be on time and never late. Do walk into class like you're a king entering a domain. Do nod at upperclassmen. Do address teachers with their names. Do put deodorant on. <laughs> do use mouthwash. And do get on a sports team. 
Yes. And then the list of don'ts. The don'ts. Don't carry your books in front. Only girls do that. Don't walk around like you're scared. Upperclassmen are like dogs and they sense that. Don't walk around like you owe the school. You've got to know your place. Don't talk to upperclassmen unless they talk to you first, in which case you answer them. Do not sit by yourself in the cafeteria. Don't talk about chitlins. <laughs> Fatback, more pig's feet. <laughs> Bring your accordion to school. Uh, never. Yeah. <laughs> and don't look to me to get you out of any jams. Right. So don't. that's Chuck, older brother, giving his little brother some advice, trying to help him out before high school. And I could totally hear that. Like I could picture two brothers talking, and you know, the older brother feeling like I got this because I've been in it a little bit longer than right. you. So let me tell you the do's and don'ts. And I love that. I also loved his relationship, Melvin's relationship with Chuck. That was very complicated. It's complicated. That's what I was going to hear. So tell yeah. me what you were thinking with that. Gosh, I don't know. Where did that come from? I mean, I have to say that the kids in the family, I loved creating the Robinson family. Robinson is a family name on my grandmother's side. Um, but they were inspired by, you know, my, my dad, uh, who's here in the audience. Uh, wait, wait. <laughs> we have a superstar in the audience. Yes, we do. It's you. That's my dad. Is this your aunt, too? Yes, my I aunt is mine is here. And my, from your movie. And my Uncle Steve as well. Where so is Uncle three Steve? Three of the four kids of my grandparents' children are here. Steve. Wow. so instrumental in me writing this book because about six years ago or so we got together here in Spokane at lovely at the home of the lovely Joan Butler who's also in the audience and she's a, a family friend who goes way back to when my grandparents first moved into North Spokane. Um, so we gathered at Joan's house and we had just a, a session of reminiscing over the weekend and you know we laughed and we cried about the good and the hard. Um, but yeah, my dad was an inspiration for Melvin. My dad had a significant stutter when he was a young person, and so that was really how that ended up in the book. Um, but my dad also kind of inspired Chuck because my dad is the consummate student athlete. I mean, he was an athlete, but he was a leader at Rogers High School. And so when I pictured Cleveland High, I was always imagining Rogers, and I was imagining my dad being that athlete. Um, I think that, that brother relationship, you know, it's like, uh, Melvin is uh, wanting to prove himself tough and that he's independent and, and he sees that Chuck doesn't necessarily want to, you know, have to look out for his little brother and he's going to prove to him that he can, he can make it on his own. But he kind of does need Chuck to stand up for him too at the same time. And so it's a complex. It's a so complex. who's the younger brother between your dad? My dad is the oldest. Okay, dad's the oldest. <laughs> dad's the sportsman. Yeah. Did any of those dynamics exist between you two? The dynamics between oh, Melvin and that's Chuck? A good question. <laughs> Uh, not really, because we're like five years apart. So when I was getting out of high school, he was just starting. Okay. I think they got along pretty well. That's good. Yeah. That's excellent. Well. Did you give him advice on what to do and not to no, do? No. Okay. <laughs> oh, he gave the advice. Okay. This is a little big brother. Steve okay. is the old soul 
in the family. And in okay. fact, the youngest brother, Neil, who lives in Kansas City and wasn't able to be here, he has told us that if you want to know my grandfather, their father, you look at Steve, because he embodies the spirit of my grandpa Tucker, who is the man who bought the house that inspired the whole story. So my uncle Steve is our family historian. He's the one who archived all the photographs that are at the back of the book and has been the one who's really kept the family stories alive. So I appreciate him so much for, you, for keeping the stories alive. Thank you. Another thing. Oh, yes. She's not a Marian character, and we did have that kind of relationship. Oh, so the, the older sister in the book, Marian, um, is black. Uh, is Spokane's first black homecoming, uh, nominated to the homecoming court. And she's the socialite, and she's very popular, and the performer. And yes, my Aunt Kathy definitely did inspire that character. And she's very social and very, she's kind of almost like a second mom to me. She's oh, been the one who's given me lots of wisdom as I've grown up. Well, so. she must be extremely proud of you. Proud of this book. So another thing that I was really fascinated about was how deeply you went into giving details about black culture, mm -hmm. and specifically black culture in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. That was fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, I would say, maybe four months, four or five months ago, the NAACP of Spokane went into partnership with the Spokane Club. Mm. Interesting. Okay, you gotta tell us more about that. <laughs> tell us the story there. I will tell you. So the director, uh, at the time GM of the Spokane Club, reached out to me and he said, Kianta, I'd like to talk, and we haven't done things right. And I can admit that, I know that, everybody knows that, I know of our tainted history, but I'd like to figure out how we move forward, and is there anything that we can do? And so we went and had dinner, the executive committee and I went and had dinner with him at the club, and we learned about the treatment that blacks in Spokane would receive when they were at the club. We learned about the coming in the back door and we talk about that in, in the book, also having to come and not go further than the kitchen, mm -hmm. all of those pieces. And so he shared all of that with me and really helped me to understand that historically, and I think I helped him to understand historically, when you look at privatized clubs, they've never been inclusive of people of color. They're not. Mm -hmm. And so it is going to take some time and it's going to take building a relationship in order to get us to a point where we can move forward together. And build this that was trust. a great start. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. a great start. Yeah, so I had to include the Spokane Club in the book. My great-grandmother worked there mm -hmm. uh, cleaning rooms. Um, in the book, the, the grandmother, uh, Melvin's grandmother, is a, uh, a cook in the kitchen. And my dad told me stories of remembering, you know, that he would have to go to the back door to, if he wanted to interact with her or find her, he would go to the back door to find her. Um, interestingly, my grandmother lived on the north side of Spokane as well, and she lived there before my grandpa bought the house there. We're not exactly sure how she got into the neighborhood, but there were a handful of black folks that lived on the north side. I'm sure each one of them had their story about how they got there. I, and I don't know their stories, I know my story, but my, yes, my grandmother worked at the Spokane Club, and I think there's some pretty... I don't know, I think compelling scenes that take place at this I think so, absolutely. So now Rob, Rob knew when he invited me that I was going to do my own thing. So I want to ask you, Dad, because you, you actually experienced that. So how old were you? What was your first memory of going into the Spokane Club through the back door into the kitchen? Well, I could tell a story how I had a difference with my dad, and I was going to run away from home. I was a senior in high school at Rogers. 
And so I had to get bus fare down to Greyhound bus because my uncle Tucson was a longshoreman in Seattle. So unbeknownst to my family, I went down to the Spokane Club and wanted to find my grandmother to get bus fare to go to Seattle. In the future, when you run away, you should have your own money. Right. <laughs> it's a tip. Yeah. yeah. No doubt. You can't come in here. I said, well, my grandmother, Geneva Gurdon, works here. And they said, well, you have to go around the back. And so I finally got to her. I must have told her the story to get some money because I wouldn't have told her, but I probably went home. And so I got on the bus and went to Seattle. But that was my first experience. The reason why I think that's interesting, and I'm glad you shared that and could share that here is because a lot of times people, when you think about racist uh, behavior activities communities, it's easy to say, um, that was way back then. That happened so long ago. That stuff is not happening now. But you are actually here in real time and saying, no, that did happen to me. I experienced that. How long had your grandmother worked at the Spokane Club? I don't know how long she worked there. But I long time. <laughs> Okay. But I know that, you know, when my dad would, would tell me some, as we talked about stories, that the, the Spokane Club was definitely one that stood out as a sore spot, you know, that he's had a hard time, you know, kind of letting that one go, because, and, and bad feelings associated with the Spokane Club. And I think, again, that's where I hope that the book will help people who don't have that experience to maybe have some empathy, maybe understand, like, when you don't have to deal with that, you don't know what it feels like, and I and I hope through fiction, a fictional line. This is my first historical fiction that it helps be an entree point, you know, into those discussions and into that um, sense of empathy, you know, that comes from maybe getting into the shoes of someone else's experience and realizing, oh wow, that happens. Absolutely, that happens to people. Absolutely. When I went to the Spokane Club, Spokane Club to meet, and actually got a membership. Uh, hey, good for you. So you guys let me know if you'd like to join me for lunch at the club. <laughs> but when I went to the club and, and had the conversation with the GM, I did not know your grandmother, but that's the woman that I saw in my mind. That was the person, the people who were allowed to only work, but could not come and enjoy the amenities of the club. And so to me, that was important that we do create some sort of reciprocity for those who could not access that resource mm -hmm. in the past. So I was really happy to hear about I might that. Can I add one last thing? Yes. Uh, when my wife and I worked here for the community college back to 2007, I was a member of the South Hill Kiwanis, and we would have events there. Mm -hmm. And at first I had a difficult time, but in my mind I resolved it that I could go there and be a part of a function because my parents and grandparents couldn't. Mm -hmm. And so I felt, I'm doing this kind of for you. You couldn't, but I'm doing this for you. So I can take part of that Absolutely, absolutely. You also talked a bit about the Asian American experience. A little bit, yes. And I thought that was fascinating because there is work that is happening with APIC, which is the Asian Pacific Islander Coalition. There's work that we are doing to, to really engage in sort of cross-cultural support. Mm -hmm. And so to see that in this story of this black family, mm -hmm. you included the character that was Asian American. Now, where did that right. come from? Right, okay. Well, when my dad and, and his siblings, and we got together and had conversations about their growing up in Spokane, they told me there was a Japanese American family on the street. So they were kind of the only black family on the street. 
Uh, and then there was an Asian family as well that they talked about. And so that just kind of put a seed in my mind, like, okay, there's another family of color, and how could that family intersect with the Robinsons? And I decided it would be through Millie, the daughter, who um, is a gentle soul and has always kind of seen Melvin for who he is. And Melvin has a crush on her, of course, but he's very, he's too scared to talk to her, and especially because of his stutter. Um, but they sort of build a friendship through the course of the book. I have a very good friend um, where I live. I live in the Seattle area. And as we've gotten to know each other over the years, she's Japanese-American. She's shared with me her family's experience. And she had family members who were imprisoned in the... Um, in the, the camps uh, during World War II. And so she shared her story with me. I just felt like I want to bring that into this story because it's another one of those things that a lot of people still don't even really realize happened on American soil. That Absolutely. You know, American citizens were incarcerated on their own soil. So I think for kids to keep that story alive and let them know this happened and we want to make sure it never happens again, um, it's important. it was important for me to put that into the book. And I hope that for those who read the book, so so when I talk to Dr. Swinney, when the school reads the book, <laughs> I hope that they are able to be um, motivated to learn more about the Asian American experience here in Spokane, because that is something, a whole giant thing that people need to know about and they need to understand well, more than anything. And my understanding is that the Japanese Americans who were incarcerated were on the western you know, side of the state. So it was 100 miles from the, the coast. And so the Japanese Americans in Spokane were spared. And a lot of people from Seattle migrated to Spokane at that point when they started to see that things were you know, turning against them. They came to Spokane. So that's a little bit of what I understood from my research, that a lot of Japanese American families ended up in Spokane because they were escaping that situation. Yeah, and they, and they escaped that one, but they came to another one. Well, sure. It's a different one here. Yeah. Something that Millie said that I thought, oh my God, I want to know Millie too. Yeah. Millie said that she felt like a tenant, a tenant in a place where the landlord could ask you to leave at any time. Yeah. And that's that's reality. And I, and I think that is the experience of many people of color here, especially those who've been here you know, for several months. Um, Decades, they feel still. But now, you still look are looked as, at as, as suspect, yes. or maybe you're not truly American, mm -hmm. because there's a vision that people have in their minds of what an American is, and it doesn't look like a person of Asian descent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and I, yeah, that was important for me. And I think I was trying also to capture. I think one of the things that's very unique to be a person of color in the Northwest, especially in a, a smaller sized city like Spokane, is that experience of being the only one in the room. And I'm sure you've experienced that. Um, and so I wanted to capture some of that, you know, of what does that feel like to be the person of color in the room. And for the white folks to, to have that empathy and that understanding of what that feels like. Uh, okay, another thing. So this is something that I thought, she's brilliant. You're brilliant, by the way. In the book, you talked about, there was a moment where there was a statement made about polio. Okay. and how the pools were closed yeah. because people were worried about if polio yeah. could be transmitted yeah. that way. And I thought, COVID. COVID, I know, it just happened. It just kind of happened, yeah. And yeah. I remember the same connection. Yeah, yeah, that there were moments where people wondered in the beginning of this pandemic, like, can we be in the same water with someone? Can we be, you know, in the same room? How close can we be? Like, no one knew. And so I think we did as a country, what we should have done, which is lean on the side of 
air, like let's just say it, nothing safe. Mm -hmm. um, but I loved that that conversation just about polio was actually so real right now. And I thought that it gave us an opportunity to know another thing, which is nothing is new. Mm. Mm -hmm. Nothing is new under the sun. That's so cool to me that you picked up on that. I didn't have anyone would, but I felt like I told you that was the book. <laughs> I told you. You read it very closely. Yes, yes. yes. So that, that is to me, you know, what, what I think we need to, as a community, as a Spokane community, and as a worldwide community, we need to understand that nothing is new. And so as these different variations of things happen, we need to learn how to take what we've learned from the past, move it forward, and then bring on the new things as well. But it's not new, meaning we're not gonna fall apart as a world. Right. Spokane right. is gonna keep Spokane. Right. The United yeah. States will keep United Stating. That's right. And so, but hopefully in better, like exactly. we're evolving and hopefully better better. versions are coming. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But even that 50s, I mean, set in the 50s Cold War, I felt mm -hmm. as I was writing that there were some parallels to today, because I feel like today's children are still living under the threat of a nuclear attack. Mm -hmm. You know, we hear about the relationship with Russia or with China and about bombs being still developed, and I think it's still an issue that kids that weighs on us and that can be frightening to children. So Absolutely. I hope that that's another um, contemporary connection point that the Absolutely. book brings up. I, I'm telling you, I think so much of this is, is good. So there was another, this was my favorite, favorite piece of the entire book. Okay. <laughs> and it was on page seven. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're not terrible of on page seven. Okay, and it says, maybe you talk about how much you hate them. I'm just saying, don't talk about them. White kids don't even know what they are. And if they find out, they're going to think that your family is weird for eating them. Yes. Talking about chitlins. Yeah. Saying, don't even mention it because there is no way you're going to be able to explain why someone would eat that. Uh, and people will judge your family. And it made me think about all of the students who are in our school system here in Spokane who may go through that same thing even now, where they feel like they cannot bring their whole selves to school in the same way that adults feel like they cannot take their whole selves into their employment or whatever they're doing. But for children, like this is, we're starting to share this thinking with kids. At a young age, you are worried about whether you would be accepted or not. And so I, I just wanted to know a little bit more about, you know, has that been a reality of yours? Have you wondered about being accepted? Have you had to question you know, whether mm -hmm. you could share something with a person who happened to be white mm -hmm. and be accepted at mm -hmm. the same time? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think if you look at all of the books I've written, a lot of my characters are very introspective and inquisitive and trying to figure something out, usually around identity. And that's me, you know, that, that really reflects me. And so um, a lot of my experience growing up as a mixed race person, for sure, I've always felt different from pretty much any environment I'm in. If I'm in an all white group, I'm the only one. And even if I'm in an all black group, sometimes I wonder, am I accepted? Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's, I'm pulling from those things as I'm creating, you know, this character who is, is struggling with those things. And, and you still experience that today, although you've written six amazing novels and you're pretty accomplished, but even still today, that, is that a reality for you? 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's ongoing. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the race, the the race question in our country has not been answered. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's more tense than ever, probably. Absolutely. I think, in terms Absolutely. of my lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, my hope with this book is that I can help help move the dialogue forward just another step, you know? So my desire in writing the book was, you know, we're in the midst of a racial dialogue across our country, and I hope that it will just add to the conversation in terms of kind of writing the historical record, you know, in terms of um, putting out there the stories that have not been told that need to be heard, um, and in helping us to facilitate the dialogue a little more, because I think ultimately if we can listen to one another, you know, if we can take the time to get past, I mean, what we look like and, and what our racial background is has impacted our experience in a significant way in this country. There's no way around it. The color of your skin does affect your experience. Um, and so that's an important component. But I also truly, truly believe that while man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. That's one of my key, key, it's a scriptural passage that I live by and I've lived my life by. And it's what keeps me going. <laughs> and it's what I want people to understand that if we can look, take, the, take everything into consideration, but listen to the heart of the person. You know, really listen to the person's story, the pain that they've been through, and the triumphs. You know, and let's get beyond, um, you know, this, this surface and look to each other's hearts so that we can have a connection Absolutely. that enables us to care. Absolutely. You don't have to look like me to come alongside and fight with me for the things that are right. That's right. Um, and, and, yes, caveat to that, I don't have to look like you to love you. You don't have to look like me for me to love you. Amen. It's the same thing. It's, I have, Rob, don't preach about this stuff all the time. <laughs> we don't have to have the same story. We do not. Um, it actually is probably better if we don't have yes. the same story. Oh my gosh, so this is so much more interesting. And yes, it keeps us sharpening each other and and it challenges us to expand ourselves, to open ourselves, you know, to be bigger people. Um, but yeah, I just think the ally piece is also in there. Um, that and I think this is something our kids need to hear as well. Um, you know, it's a crushing reality right now between the racial tensions and, and discord and challenges and then COVID and the pandemic and then the environmental degradation and, you know, climate change. I think our kids are really, really struggling and we need to come alongside them and say, we're in this together. Yes. And that's one of the very last things that Melvin realizes as he looks out in the audience I don't want to give. I don't want to spoil anything. Don't tell them. <laughs> We've only made it to page seven, and our time is up. But he's looking out at the audience, and you know, seeing him, seeing the white white teacher that came alongside him, or Millie and her family, the Japanese American family, and then of course all of his black um, community that are there, and his family, and realizing we're all in this together. And that's what I want our children to hear. We're with you in this. We're gonna fight with you to, to right the wrongs. Absolutely, well, I'm so happy that you came yeah. to speak with us, to speak with me. I don't know if you were talking to them or not, but I'm glad you came to talk to me. And we wanna give everyone an opportunity to ask questions sure. specifically so that you can okay. answer them. Don't okay. give away the secrets. But okay, I'm so, it's so hard not to because I love the ending. Actually, I love so, so do I. Get to the ending, please. Yes. Because you, you won't regret it. That's right. That's right. 
So before, before we go to the Q&A, one, one quick story. When I first got here, uh, I wanted to make sure that the owners of the paper weren't going to mess with me. I was told that they would leave me alone. They wouldn't tell me what to write, what not to write. But I needed to prove that to myself. So I helped find the story about the covenants on South Hill. It ran five years ago. And this story becomes important because uh, William H. Coles II was one of the signers of the covenants. So this was the direct descendants of my boss. And we've still never talked about it. <laughs> so I think that means we're okay. People always ask, does your boss try to get you to write things? No, he doesn't. And he doesn't try to stop me from writing things either. So I want you all to know that that story really touched me when you told me this, you know, because it was my litmus test. So, anyway, now let's get to the Q&A. This is my favorite part anyway, uh, though, let's be honest, Kante's pretty awesome. So. question. We're going to have someone run the mic to you. I will run the mic. I can start off the question. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, it was fun to read this book because of all of the hidden treasures of Spokane. There were some tricks though. Grover Cleveland, the, the, was a tiger was the mascot and that's a LC tiger. You know? <laughs> so how, what, how hard was it to hide things in Spokane or how did you decide what, what you were going to let go and, you know, Grover Cleveland was supposed to be Rogers, but what, I mean. You're talking about Lewis and Clark are the Tigers. Yeah, Lewis and Clark are the Tigers. And the top editor actually pointed that out. She said, do you want to change the mascot? Because that's actually for a different high school that actually exists in Spokane. And I was like, no, I think I like it. I'm going to go with it. Because <laughs> at the beginning, you know, um, Melvin is in his bedroom trying to stay cool, calm, and collected. You know, kind of freaking out about the fact that he's about to go to high school. And he's feeling a little bit like a gladiator about to get thrown into the Coliseum. And he says, he says something like, you know, go Tigers. You know, like he's about to face, you know, his own tiger in the Coliseum of, of Cleveland High School. So I wanted to leave the mascot alone. But I, I, did, a, I did a lot of research. How did, long did it take for you to write this book? About 10 years. And um, I did, I read memoirs of people who grew up in Spokane. I read um, nonfiction works on uh, the Northwest, especially I want to give a shout out to Professor Quintard Taylor of the University of Washington, a black man who's done blackpast.org, if you've never seen blackpast.org, an amazing historical documentation of blacks in the Northwest and the West Coast. Um, I, I, and then of course, you know, I had memories from having visited here and spent many summers here with my grandparents. And so a lot of my memories were just, uh, it was drawn from my childhood. Um, I have to give a shout out to the Freeman family. A couple of representatives are here in the house. <laughs> that is a long-standing black family. Um, uh, Clarence Freeman was a real estate owner and a businessman. And um, I remember going to their house with my grandparents and celebrating 4th of July and swimming in their pool. And so uh, there's a scene where there's a picnic, kind of a barbecue. Like I remember going to those cookouts, you know, and all of the who's who of the black community of Spokane would be there um, and getting to interact with those people. And again, just feeling the, the awe of the dignity with which they carried themselves. I just, I'm so impressed with how black people in Spokane, especially in those, those years when there was oppression, there were limited opportunities. More well, opportunities than there were in the South. That's 2021. Uh, yes, I'm sure. It's, it's, still, real. it's still real. Um, but they developed, they had a vision to create 
um, a, a good life for themselves and their children. And so, in fact, you know, my, my dad and his siblings told me we felt kind of sheltered in some ways from the otherness of the racism. We didn't, they didn't even know about the restrictive covenants and what it took for their father to get the home where they had it because they were pretty protected from that. Because my grandparents, you know, they, had, they, they were kind of living, they wanted to live this middle class existence. And they did it, you know. So a lot of black people in Spokane, they created their own literary circles. My grandma was part of the Wednesday Art Club. Um, there was the uh, Prince Hall uh, Masons, uh, which is a black chapter of the Freemasons, and the Order of the Eastern Star for the women. There were just so many, wonder, you know, they played bridge. Um, my grandfather, he hunted, he golfed, he fished, he did all the things that maybe black men weren't supposed to do and maybe still aren't supposed to do. He just defied the stereotypes. Well, those are all the things that in the Pacific Northwest those you are do. Reasons to come here. Yeah, it's exactly. part of why you and, should be here to enjoy that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then he would also, you know, he he raised flowers and loved poetry, and he wanted to be a journal a journalist. Actually, he was a, a writer. Um, he lost all of his college savings in the the depression when the banks failed, and he was not able to go to college. Um, but I kind of feel like I'm living that legacy um, in in terms of I study journalism in school, and I'm getting to be a writer. So my hope is. I mean, the whole story is it's, it only exists because of my grandfather and what he did to break down the barriers and to, to raise his kids where he did and how he did. It was, it was his act of civil disobedience to be himself and to be self-determining, to live where he, he wanted to and to raise his kids where he wanted and how he wanted to. It's beautiful. Speaking of his kids, one of them's got a question. <laughs> of course. I have a question I asked at a Seattle event. Was there an aha moment when you decided on the title for this book? Mighty Inside, yes. So um, my editor and I, so I work with a man named Arthur Levine. Uh, his publishing house is Levine Cuarito, but he's formerly with Scholastic, which is a really well-known kids publishing company. It's been around for a century, I'm sure, and does the Scholastic book fair. So my, my editor moved over from Scholastic and formed his own publishing house, and I'm so honored to work with him. Um, he's known as the man, he's well, best known for being the man who brought Harry Potter to America. Um, so when I tell kids that, I score a lot of points. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, but Arthur and I, I mean, when I turned in this manuscript to Arthur, I mean, I, I think probably half of it had to go. So, just in case you're wondering what kind of work you have to go through as an author, it's not like when you turn in that manuscript, it's just, you know, signed, sealed, and delivered. Um, we went through a lot of revisions and work on it um, to get it where it was. But anyway, Arthur and I, when it was finally done and in the can, we had to come up with a title. And... Um, it just took us a very long time. We went around and around and around. We had probably a hundred different ideas. What were some of the other ideas? Oh, yeah, good question. I wanted to go a little more fun, like um, Mighty Melvin Takes the Stage. That was my Mighty favorite. Melvin <laughs> Takes the Stage. Yes, yes. Okay, I, because, I like this one better, but okay. Yeah, good. good. So, yeah, because, you know, Melvin plays the accordion, and we right. didn't talk about this, right. but he and Lenny end up auditioning for Starlet Stairway. Maybe some of you in the audience oh, remember oh, Starlet oh, Stairway. And our cousin, Butch, uh, who I interviewed for the book, he actually appeared on Starlet Stairway many times as a violinist. Um, I won't tell you what happens with Lenny and Melvin. Lenny's his friend who plays the saxophone. But um, anyway, I don't know where I was going with that. So that was one of the type of ideas. My editor wanted to go more literary, and he had things like Death by a Thousand Cuts. Which, I'm <laughs> all serious. You got it right. So, okay, so, so I was telling my Aunt Kathy that we were having a really hard time, and, and she had read the manuscript, and she said, you know, Sunday, you just did such a good job. You just, 
nailed it when it comes to what it feels like to be the only person of color in the room. You know, she just felt like I really captured that. Um, and she said, but you know what, this book is universal. It's not just for the kid of color. That's right. And it's I not really just for a kid. It's not just for a kid, thank you. Yeah, it's a good story, it's a good story. Um, and it has something to say to all of us. But she said, I really believe that any child or any person who's ever felt like they had a limitation that caused them to doubt their abilities is gonna relate to this book, is gonna relate to Melvin. Because ultimately, he's, he's afraid that he's not gonna be able to do what he wants to do, but he's got a strength inside, he's mighty inside, and that's what comes out in the course of the book, right? And I heard mighty inside and I said, I think that's a title. And in fact, she might have even said, I think this could be a good title. Yeah, she came up with a list for me. She Brainstorming yes. back and forth. Just well, this, you got, got it right. I think and so I, I got pitched right. it to my editor, and he said, "Mighty Inside." That's the title. We're going with it. So, well, yeah. thank you so for sharing. Aunt Kathy is the one. Aunt Kathy, 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 give Aunt Kathy a hand. <laughs> thank you, Aunt Kathy. It was really a family effort. They really came behind me and have supported me all the way in this. And my hope is that it gives honor to them and to our forebearers, who go way back in Spokane, early 1900s, some of the first black people to arrive from North Carolina and settled in Peaceful Valley. So we have, we have a history here, it goes way back. Rob? All right, how fun was that? <laughs>